listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to futurist Tracy Follows. Maybe we'll find that we can rebuild ourselves in those 3D immersive environments and actually we, we won't be so confused and dispirited and broken as selves as we are in sort of social media and, and the other platforms. Tracy shed her insights into how digital technology is transforming our identity, how new ways to capture biometric data will require us to rethink our relationship with governments and corporations, and what AI-enabled virtual persons can teach us about what it means to be human. In 1931, engineer Harry Beck created an image that would change the way we came to think about the City of London. Beck created a map of horizontal, vertical and 45 degree lines that would become the iconic representation of the London Underground, a visual that so many of us are familiar with today. You see, Beck realised that when you're underground, geography doesn't matter. What's more important is topography, the relationship between the stations. In a way, Beck's map is an interesting metaphor for how we present ourselves online. Say, for example, that London was destroyed in a disaster, and all that remained was the London Underground Tube map. It would be almost impossible to rebuild something as complex as a city from this simplified representation. In the same way, the data we share online is only a small part of ourselves, with the complexity of who we are reduced to a series of interconnected data points. The broad spectrum of an individual's identity doesn't matter, just the relationship between their data. This changing notion of who we are is explored in detail in Tracy Follow's new book, The Future of You, that explores the myriad of ways the concept of you has been transformed by a wide range of technological innovations and ultimately asks the question of what you can do about it. So Tracy, how has technology fundamentally transformed you, who you are, and what you is? Brilliant question. I think when I started to think about it, I was thinking about the properties of the internet, actually, because I'd already noticed that everything felt quite communitarian. Obviously, communities of interest were being brought together and people who weren't necessarily in the same location were forming these groups and those groups had certain power um, in this interconnected world. So I started to think that life, the world, reality, whatever, is becoming much more interconnected and then therefore inherently communitarian. I was thinking about, well, where does that leave individuals and individual responsibility? Mm -hmm. Because we seem to be moving in groups these days. And then I started to think about actually your identity because there was a point in time where I couldn't prove my identity online and it made me think well how on earth do I authenticate myself how do I prove that I am me it sounds absolutely ridiculous and it is ridiculous in a way but there's a tech platform having a say having the say actually as to my identity and whether I am who I say I am and I started to think about this interconnected world and the fact that we were all fragmented as you've just kind of alluded to and then actually we had a distributed identity across the internet but also we were being kind of forced encouraged or coerced to behave in a very similar homogenous way and so I was just starting to think about where does this leave the individual if we think about identity as you know a separate individual separate from 
other individuals and to some extent separate from the environment they're in and how do we identify them in the future and actually have we got or any autonomy (laughs) over our identity anymore if we're in this kind of amorphous homogenous group identity uh, and and that's the way we have to survive so that's partly why asking the question can your identity survive 21st century technology I mean, it's so weird because originally we thought the internet would give us morphological freedom. We could be whoever we wanted to be. Famously, there was that New Yorker cartoon, on the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog. But in actual fact, what's ended up happening is we craft these identities in a very specific way with the knowledge of who our potential audience is. So where do you think that disconnect came from? How do you think we're subjectively editing ourselves for these online environments? I was, um, I mean, I quote Marshall McLuhan in the book and I was revisiting this idea and watching again the, I mean, I'm a bit obsessed with him and his work and I keep going back to it now thinking like, it's happening now. (laughs) Everything that he was talking about and, and forecasting in a sense. I think it's because we are in a post literacy world you know we are post-literacy we're beyond language written language now we're beyond the phonetic alphabet we are immersed in these 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 virtual worlds these digital worlds digital feels much more 3d writing feels quite 2d in comparison and uh McLuhan was saying I can't remember the quote exactly but it's it's very poetic and I won't do it justice but he was talking about how when you write language you separate yourself from the world and from other people because it gives you more control but it gives you less involvement and I think what we're finding now is that we're not using language and written language increasingly we're in a, a social audio space or we're doing this podcast or we're in a forum or we're in a, a virtual reality immersive media world and in those worlds we're much closer connected to everybody else and I think that's what's happening I think we're becoming much more aware of ourselves because of that mm. and less aware of our ideas. So people are allowed to sort of plug into our thoughts, plug into our emotions much more in those sorts of media environments, I think. Whereas before, when things were written, it was much more of an intellectual, rational exercise, which was much more about ideas and language. I have to admit something, Tracy. When we first became aware of each other, it was through Twitter, and you followed me, and your name was Tracy Follows. And for almost six months, I was wondering, I wonder what Tracy's real last name is. And of course, uh, you know, the the platforms through which we interact make so many assumptions about the individual on the other end. And, and when I finally found out that your last name was actually follows, I was, I was astonished. And it, and it kind of serves that you, uh, you writing a book about online identity almost <laughs> feels like it was written in the stars. But these platforms, I mean, they do have an effect on how we treat each other, don't they? They are the lens through which we interact with, with so many people. And, and in some cases, they're the first port of call for how we interact with some folks. Yeah. Well, by the way, obviously, my name is uh, Fellows or Fallows or any of the (laughs) (laughs) um, 
and nobody ever actually thinks my name is follows. Yes, it is. I changed it just to live on Twitter. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I yeah. Well, I think again, McLuhan sort sort of talks about when you're in a, an emerging media space and it's kind of like a frontier. You need to assert your identity. You have to mm-hmm. be heard and seen. And again, I think that's what's happening. We're in this weird, ethereal, intangible, virtual space. As you say, you, you're not given any visual characteristics. You could kind of go on tone, but not really. That's quite difficult. I mean, <laughs> we all know sarcasm doesn't work um, in, these, <laughs> in these media. Well, I found that out anyway. And um, I think that's what's going on. So people are much more assertive about their identity, trying to prove themselves, trying to get their identity recognised somehow. And actually it tips over into aggressiveness. Um, and also... It feels a little unsafe, perhaps, for some people, because you're kind of out there, as he says, on the frontier. And I think people try to buddy up with whoever's kind of next to them. I mean, next to them, not, you know, physically, but in terms of values or belief system or, oh, you know, it's it's safety in numbers, I think. So I think a bit of that's going on. But these are media, unlike literary media, which is very rational. Again, these are media which are very tribal. I mean, they're tribal media. It's oral, um, it's story-based, it's it's word of mouth. This is how communication happens now. And it just leads to very different groupings and very different um, dynamics, I think, between people. And identity is kind of at the, at the heart of that. When I was reading your book, I was reminded of Robin Sloan's essay. Robin Sloan is probably the best title for an essay I've ever, I've ever heard, which is Kanye West Media Cyborg. And he has this, uh, he has this paragraph in there which talks about how media lets you clone pieces yourself and send them out into the world to have conversations on your behalf. Even when you're sleeping, your media, your books, your blog posts, your tweets are on the march. It's out there trying desperately to make connections mostly it's failing but that's okay these days copies are cheap and it does feel like what you were saying there that we're desperately trying to make connections through these avatar based profiles and we're we're just largely failing and we're desperately screaming for attention to be acknowledged and and when it doesn't happen it, we do end up in these kind of weird um, relationships with our feeds and with others where we're just posting what is going to get us public attention yeah uh, it's a bit like you know Brits abroad isn't it it didn't work I wasn't <laughs> understood I'm just going to shout it louder shout louder yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what's happening um I mean, I I really agree with that quote. I mean, we are media. That's what we are now. These Mm. are the tools of our time. It's not the industrial revolution. It is a media revolution. And we haven't come to even halfway understand the media that we're we're now sort of immersed in. So we're kind of just flailing around, trying to be understood, not being understood. Mm. And we don't really know the rules or the etiquette or anything like that. We haven't really even taken much time to reflect, I think, and, and think about how we're behaving or how we're connecting or how much of this is reality, how much of this is fiction or virtuality. Does it even matter? Obviously, I, we're moving towards some sort of hybrid reality, virtual reality, augmented reality world. But 
to me, it's all one world. I mean, and that's the way we should be experiencing it. And that's the way we should be thinking increasingly about communicating in it so that our identity isn't fragmented across these different sort of spaces. Actually, mm. our identity has um, different moods or different expressions depending on where, where we are and how we're moving around. It's one big multidimensional space. And I think we haven't even come to understand that yet. Well, I'm almost for embracing the fragmentation. So, so I took my, I took my middle name in 2010. My name was Luke Mason for my entire life up until 2010 because I couldn't buy LukeMason.com. It was owned by some like 12 year old photographer in Middle America somewhere. So I, I decided, all right, to get my domain name, I'm going to call myself Luke Robert Mason. And to this day, my mother goes, "Oh, if I knew you were going to take your middle name, I would have given you a better one." <laughs> you know, she's so dis disappointed by the fact that I use it professionally, but it became this professional identity. And it just happened that when Twitter launched, the exact amount of characters you ha could have as a username also matched Luke Robert Mason. So it just kind of fitted. And it feels like for the last decade, I've spent my time curating this digital version of myself, this Luke Robert Mason character, which to a degree is created based on the expectations of some false audience. It's very hard not to tweet or talk about technology or science. And when you do, you look back on the tweet and go, oh, yes, that's how I feel or what I think, but how would my audience feel about that? And you almost lose control of your own identity when you become ambiently aware of this, this silent audience of, you know, a couple of thousand faceless people that you've never had authentic uh, relations with and yet define how you choose to interact online. It's it's almost, it's so backwards. <laughs> it's so messed up. I use the, um, early in the book, I used the Dolly Parton challenge. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's a long time ago now, but it really isn't. It's like, what, just over a year ago. And it really makes the point when you put those four photos together, you know, one of it for Instagram, black and white moody shot with the guitar, one for yeah. Facebook, you know, Christmas jumper. Um, you know, you've got the LinkedIn, you know, <laughs> looking very professional. These are more than just moods and expressions that, uh, you know, I, or Dolly in this case, happens to feel. They literally are curated for four separate audiences and I thought mm. that challenge was amazing because people are all jumping in and trying to do it without necessarily realizing that you are not fragmenting your own identity because it's of interest to you and it's going to bring some I don't enriched experience you're literally doing it to please other people to fit in and to please the audience and to get a few more likes so you know I must dash off and put this jumper on if I need to appear here I mean it really is quite <laughs> odd really it's tiring as well Tracy that's the, that's the other thing it's I tiring. think people are starting to realize a, a decade of social media now and we're being told that COVID is is driving us more towards digital based interaction, but in actual fact, the 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 need to constantly curate these things like it's a full time job it's so frustrating. And there's there's something almost beautiful about the idea that you were able to walk away from these platforms and and take time to put ideas into a book. You know, you didn't break the bloody thing down into a bunch of tweets. You actually thought about something and put it together as a large piece of text. There's there's value in doing that in an age where creating these micro pieces of media is so cheap. These copies are cheap. Yes, but it's interesting 
thing that about the book. I hadn't thought about that. But it, the reason is because I wanted to make an argument. I wanted to make yeah. the argument about why we need to reflect on our identity and, and do something about it. And actually, if I'd done it as a series of tweets, it would just have been a, a series of just really, um, what would you call them? I'm try, trying not to use the word that springs to mind. They would have just been a series of... <laughs> noise really because yeah. this is one of the other things there's no linear or rational argumentation not really that's not really i mean you can't have a dialogue like a socratic dialogue in that mm. any of those kinds of media because there's no back and forth that builds up to better understanding it's always a back and forth that tries to tear down the original premise it's about taking sense away i think in these sorts of dialogues rather than enriching and adding to so you come out of it feeling like you've learned something i hardly ever feel that when i get into mm. a, a conversation on those sorts of media you just have to take yourself off and get into an, an, another media which allows for a lot more personal connection i think it is interesting i mean i sometimes think well maybe it's just my age because there's a whole generation who are you know the tiktok creators whatever they are really <sighs> they are really kind of dependent on these sorts of media for forming and exploring their own identities. And in a funny sort of way, these narratives that they build up, even though it's episodic, so you get on, you do your little dance, you do your little joke or whatever it is, they build up, they do build up to a narrative of this is me and this is my life. And it does create some kind of sense of identity, like... I was here, you know, this was what mm. I did on this sort of day and this is how I expressed and this is how I felt. And it's very, very emotional, of course. It's Most of it's driven by emotion. It's hardly ever driven by, really by reality. It's not really that grounded. And it's the best example of the fact that now identity is literally a performance. It isn't something you have or something you are. It's something you act and that's what identity has become. And it goes back to your point about, well, it's a performance for who? Well, it's a performance for my audience that I that I crave. Crave, crave attention for. But I mean, that goes all the way back to Irving Goffman yes. and his book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. I mean, we... we constantly perform our identities. I'm different with you than I am with my parents, with my best friends, with my grandmother, with the person in the coffee shop. We do have differentiated versions of ourselves and we don't fully own those either. I mean, your opinion of me, Tracy, you own a part of my identity and your brain of who you think I am and vice versa. You know, it's, it's this desire and this need to control our narratives through media and then constructing these kind of meta narratives online which seems to be the task of individuals in the 21st century which at the end of the day these kids burn out you know these influences they just burn out because creating these realities and then sustaining these realities is so time intensive yeah it's exhausting as you said but also on top of that we've now got all the computer generated influencers um yep. people to follow and to converse with and to you know talk about and obsess over so we're just creating more and more and more identities to fill up the space and thinking less and less about our own and the way in which our own identity is being affected well, I find, and you, you speak about these in the book, I find the virtual influences more authentic than the human influences. <laughs> because at least you know where 
You stand with them. They were created by media, for media, and from media. They live in these informational environments. They don't have this other life that they're trying to hide or reconstruct to make it look pretty for Instagram.、Mm. They live on Instagram. <laughs> There is no real world. The real world for are, them is Instagram. They are literally nothing without yeah, yeah. the audience following them. Yeah, literally. It was little Michaela is the、uh, is the virtual influence. I, I find that I find that utterly fascinating, and partly I find it utterly fascinating because the reason they work is not because they are good representations of human beings. It's because Instagram influencers or tweeters communicate in machinic ways. It's because we reduce human communication to a very machinic medium, whether it's 280 characters and a bunch of hashtags. It's very easy to replicate that with AI. It's very hard to replicate the complexity of a human being with artificial general intelligence. We're we're years and years and years from that. But to get something that will generate a tweet that looks like a tweet that a human has created is is pretty damn easy. So because we expect less from human beings, we're quite happy to accept more from these virtual influences. Mm, I think that's yeah. I think that's probably right. I mean, the weirdest thing I found about those virtual influencers was,、um, I think it was Shudu. I can't remember the exact character, but、um, obviously it was a virtual influencer who'd become incredibly. I want to say successful, but even that's not、yeah. the right word because、um, popular. <laughs>、uh, and actually, I think it, I think she's one of the digitals. And what they've done is create then fans for her to follow her. Now these fans were real. Um, but they were asked to pose in the way she poses, and to sort of <laughs> echo some of her characteristics and personality traits. And so, what they'd done is create a virtual influencer that then real people were asked to sort of mould themselves to, and to kind of go around sort of as these fans, as these kind of replica fans. It was it's the weirdest thing. It's kind of really what do you? I mean, the amount of time that's been taken to do that when you could have been I don't know going to university and I don't know. Learning astrophysics, <laughs> but you know, this is what you're spending your time on. But it is absolutely fascinating, and I do think there is this generation who have obviously grown up who maybe aren't asking these sorts of questions about integrity of identity across different kinds of worlds because they kind of acknowledge and and understand, I guess, and, and probably embrace the fact that they've got a physical body and physical identity in the real world for for what it's worth, but they've also、um, got this identity that's you know mixed, kind of posted, remixed,、uh, pixelated, you know, all these sorts of things, and 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 that's just quite natural. And I think especially. This generation, Gen Z or whatever, who are incredibly creative, I think they actually revel in that,、um, mm. and I think it it allows them to be very creative. Increasingly, they're creative with their own identity and personality and characteristics, and not not creative with something in the real world. It is their own self and their identity is the canvas on which the, it allows them to create, and that's kind of a different thing as well. And maybe it's because the world of media is pointing back at them all of the time,、um, and we never had that previously. We just didn't have it. You couldn't broadcast yourself. You didn't have those platforms available to you when I was young, for example. So I think that's what's happening. It's just their world 
in one way, their world is huge and global and full of potential. And in another way, their world is so tiny and it's kind of just always in a mirror looking back at oneself. And, and that's almost the extent of it. And it's probably through that tiny screen on the smartphone that is is, yeah. is to blame for that. But, but it's not really a mirror, is it? It's more like a funhouse mirror. I mean, these people are, <laughs> these people are accentuating certain parts of themselves for social currency. Your identity is up for grabs based on the biases of either the platform or what the audience wants to see. And you end up replicating those tropes. And in TikTok uh, folks end up doing these mimetic TikTok dances mm -hmm. specifically because they know it's going to get them social currency. And, and I'm reminded of uh, it was uh, Dana Boyd who, who wrote the essay, uh, I Tweet Honestly, I Tweet Passionately, which talked about these social media meta-narratives that we're creating that are based purely on getting public attention. And she says how publicity culture prizes social skills that encourages, as you said, performance. People are rewarded with jobs, with dates and attention for displaying themselves in easily consumed public ways using tropes of consumer culture. And this is the thing that made me really uncomfortable reading your book is the fact that consumer culture is creating this feedback loop where it's defining how we present our identity. We are quite literally becoming the product because we want to represent these products. <laughs> You know, yes, like well, we certainly are, but it's going to get even worse, I think, depending on how you look at it, when you're literally going, okay, so I've created a performance, I've now productized it, the next step is to earn not just money for it, but to become a token, a token, you know? So if you think yeah. about BitCloud and all those sorts of things, literally people are going to be able to have a share in the identity that you've created, which, you know, is, okay, it's the monetization of identity, but it's the monetization of a, of a fragmented, distributed identity where not just people have some sort of ownership or have a stake in it, they literally have a share in a bit of you <laughs> that you've created, and then you're really going to have have to keep that performance going, presumably. Mm. Otherwise, you know, you you got to keep your shareholders happy. But, but this is this is what scares me about all this micropayment stuff that's coming around the corner. Soon, I can start paying everybody for tweets, and you know, I'll give you a little micropayment here for your tweet. I'll give you a little micropayment here for your podcast. I'll give you a little micropayment here for your nude photos on OnlyFans. You know, mm -hmm. there's this kind of weird commoditization of identity uh, based on the fact that you have to lock yourself into the thing that is consumed and then make as much money as possible off it. You know, I, I am almost an advocate for these virtual identities because you know what? The, the real life individual who lives IRL in the real world, they can be whoever they want to be. I'm going to create a virtual Luke Robert Mason and he can whore himself out and monetize himself in whatever way, shape or form he wishes. And I don't have to worry about it. I can live my life in the real world whilst my virtual self goes and, and writes vapid tweets that I can make, you know, six cents on per, per retweet, you know? Can we call him Luke Robert Mason the third? 
Because I no, would... Luke Robot Mason. He's going to be called <laughs> Luke Robot Mason, and he's going to go out and he's just going to ingest the last decade's worth of tweets. And you can pay for that crap, you know, because <laughs> I don't care. That's the thing. You know, there's there's something very liberating, or there was supposed to be something very liberating about the idea that you could be whoever you wanted to be online. That that transhumanist idea of morphological freedom that you you look at within within your your book. You could you could try on new identities, and you could have these pseudonymous identities but mm-hmm. I mean it was Facebook who killed that wasn't it it was Rani Zuckerberg who said you know I don't want anonymity online everybody has to basically have a true reflection of themselves on Facebook and of course Facebook wanted that because that's how they make their money you know if you're verifiably you we can verifiably market towards your demographic and what that's done is the, the tech stacks have defined how we get to express ourselves Online, there's no platforms anymore for us to have true pseudonymity or pseudonym pseudonymous. <laughs> Man, that's hard to say. Yeah. Pseudonymous identity anymore. I mean, the closest to it is 4chan, and the only reason why you would have a pseudonymous identity on something like 4chan is because you want to say something controversial. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, it, I mean it's 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 for whistleblowers and people like that who yeah. want to tell the world the true story of something, but don't. There's too much jeopardy if they're linked to their families or their workplace or anything mm. like. That. I think there's going to be more and more of that coming. I mean, the boring way in which it's changing, I suppose, is you know, that people leaving traditional media and setting up their substacks and whatever. I'm kind of a bit bored of that, but you can see that <laughs> you know. It only takes somebody to create some sort of collective where there are pseudonymous entities writing their authentic thoughts or experiences and they're kind of, I don't know, it is all to do with Bitcoin and it feels like it's a shared kind of community, but you don't really know quite who's in it. I suppose like a mini network. I mean, I think that's the thing Mm. with Facebook. I haven't been on it for a long time, but they desperately need to build their identity graph. And so you're right. That's what they kind of coerced people into. And it's the same. It's it's, It's the same across most of the platforms. It's only Google, I suppose, has really kind of failed in that sort of space, although they've got enough of an identity graph (laughs) um, Mm. through um, your locations. And and now probably the NHS app. I don't know. Maybe we'll come back to that. (laughs) But I think we might find that there are some sort of micro communities where you, you can communicate, you can express yourself, you can write your thoughts and opinions, because increasingly one can't express their actual opinion because it's just too dangerous, given the kind of shaming or the um, the kind of backlash that one has. And again, that's an example of a a kind of groupthink, a kind of consensus, a conformity, where everyone is encouraged to think the same thing about a news topic or political party or is the same with coronavirus. The, the mainstream media has become nothing but propaganda, in my view. And so at the top end, you've got kind of the mass media, mainstream media, that's propaganda. And at the micro level, you've got what you were just explaining, which is all these kind of shattered identities who are desperate for, for likes. What is in the middle? <laughs> mm. Maybe it's still to come. Maybe it's virtual media. Maybe when we find our way to extend our identities into an extended reality through virtual media maybe we'll find that we can rebuild ourselves in those 3d immersive environments and actually we we won't be so confused and dispirited and broken as selves as we are in sort of social media and and the other platforms as you've articulated really 
I mean, you allude to it in the book, but this idea of the pseudonymous economy and on what that might actually look like, because that something like that would really challenge the business model of big tech if people were truly allowed to be whoever they wanted to be online without any verifiable identifier back to a real biological human being. It's interesting that I think Balaji Srinivasan's idea was he's certainly spoken about it for for many years. I mean, of course, then you've got probably one of the big platforms starting to develop tools that can work out from your written language or your speech or the way Mm. you express yourself who you really are. So then you've got kind of digital forensics being used in in an anti-way, really. Normally, it's there to tell us what's uh, what's fake and what really is, you know, I don't fake news or propaganda or or mis- misleading information. Now they're going to probably use these tools to say, oh, well, we don't know who it is and it's really um, ambiguous and unidentifiable. Actually, we're going to find out the truth of it. So mm. by de- identifying some some truth where previously it had been used to identify what's fake. And so I don't know the way around that. That is one of the things I do think, can you really escape it once some of these digital forensics tools come in. People are just scanning the environment and able to say, oh, well, that's that's so-and-so. I mean, these platforms have become so pervasive that it does feel like it's a cradle-to-grave sort of way in which we're going to have to deal with it. I mean, the digital birth now, you know, you, you cover it briefly in the book, the, the idea that children are born onto the internet before they're even born into reality. The idea that mothers-to-be or parents-to-be are putting pictures of the fetus up on social media before it's born, and then importantly, creating a separateness already, you know, like giving it an identity that's separate to the mother who's obviously carrying it, as is shown in the scan. Oh, it looks like him. Oh, it looks like me. Oh, it's going to be called the... Oh, it's, you know talking about it as if it's already a separate identity out into the world it's not out <laughs> it's out on social media but it's not out i thought that's absolutely yeah. fascinating there, there was a there was a project a couple of years ago probably a decade ago now called kick b which was an elastic band that pregnant women could wear and every time the baby kicked it would send a notification oh. to twitter and that tweet would be in the first person. Mm. So it'd be, I just kicked mummy at 12.58pm. I just kicked mummy at 2pm. That was truly odd to me. The idea that you would begin to give these things a first person view of the world before they've even established their own Mm. understanding of who they are as an individual within the world. And then the parents continue that fiction. It, it's it's creepy to me when parents set up Instagram or Facebook accounts for their kids and then post photos of their kids speaking in the first person. Mm-hmm. You know, babies with captions along the lines of, oh, I'm just throwing my food around like I always do. It's like, <laughs> this is just weird. It's like a virtual influencer, right? That's like the Whoa. first... I mean, really, it is because you're giving it a personality. You're taking and you're creating an image. It's almost like there is no real person behind that. It's just a digitally computerized image almost. Yeah, but eventually there will be a real person behind it. And But we haven't lived that longer period of time to the point at which we've had a generation who's had to hand over their social accounts to their children. I always wonder when the digital bar mitzvah is going to be, when the baby who's 
parents have put them onto social media for the last 13 years finally turn around and go, we will now give you your passwords to all of your social media accounts that we've been subjectively posting on on your behalf for the last 13, 14 years. And now you have the logins and go off and become um, your own person. I mean, the thing I would do if I was a kid, I would delete everything. You know, I, it's, I'm overjoyed that all my baby photos are in a shoebox under the stairs because no algorithms can go through that shoebox, look at all the times I was sucking my thumb and work out whether I'm anally or orally retentive to work out the best way to market shit to me. Yeah, oh, I think kids are going to be able to sue their parents for that in the future. I mean, honestly, I mean, <laughs> I know, but I, I, do, I mean that because you don't know, because you know that we're into this, this language of harm now. You know, mm. you could in the future, as we go forward, argue that that is harmful, harmful to me, harmful to my development, harmful to my mental health. I mean, you know, I say in the book about the UK commissioners, uh, children's commissioners report that on average, over the th- first 13 years of a, of a child's life, their parents have posted 1,300 images and videos and photos and whatnot um, on on social media. So it's one of the reasons that particularly kids of that age, who kind of start to go into, you know, virtual gaming, virtual realities, to express their own identities in a much freer, liberated way because they feel the weight of the expectations from parents or society or or whoever, and they need to escape that. You know, you've already created an identity for this kid to live up to. What if it can't and what if it doesn't want to? Um, And at the moment, that's a moral dilemma. But I do think in the future that potentially can become a legal dilemma. That is, I mean, we're doing it for ourselves anyway. I mean, you and I were both stuck in our little filter bubbles surrounded by science and tech people. If suddenly tomorrow I decided, you know what, screw all this. (laughs) You know, it's been fun. Now I want to, you know, go and explore something else entirely like deep sea fishing or God knows what else. You know, how long it would take me considering I spent a decade curating an audience of science and tech folk, how long it would take me to go and establish a new identity would be so difficult. And I do think maybe synonymous or pseudonymous identities will be the way forward. People will just create all these little virtual versions of themselves to to go and truly explore the multitudes of their identity and mm-hmm. learn and experiment That's exactly who it. they want to be. Otherwise, you have to take yourself off to a witness protection program. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, <laughs> a, a witness protection stuff. program from yourself. Exactly. But we build these things and, and then they do give us social currency. I mean, you know, my own Twitter feed and having the little blue tick, I mean, it does open up a multitude of opportunities and there's reasons to sit there and carefully curate that thing. But sometimes it can feel like an albatross, the fact that you have to constantly feed into it. And then the question becomes, what happens? happens to all of this stuff that we put out there once we die. Yes, well, it just carries on, doesn't it? It carries, <laughs> it carries on because we have already nominated some sad person to yeah. curate and manage our digital afterlife, I suppose. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I, I was thinking when I was doing the book, I was thinking, who would you nominate? I mean, you could be really cruel and nominate someone you really don't want to give. 
it doesn't want that burden <laughs> and you've given them that burden or you could be really um, smart and give it to somebody who will really represent you well and be truthful to your your character and your personality in the digital afterlife although do you want that or do you want somebody who will almost create your fictional yeah. your preservation that is fictional because I talk in the book about you know obviously you can piece bits of voice and audio and imagery together and almost create the person that you would have loved to have been <laughs> and get mm. somebody to curate and manage that um, in the digital afterlife. And perhaps it's a much better person than you were in your real life, actually. But again, that does beg the question about what kind of assets we'll have. Whether we're a real person or a digital preservation in the digital afterlife, kind of been digitally embalmed, we will have built up some assets if you're looking at F NFTs and all that sort of stuff and how we're moving towards this tokenization. What happens to those assets in the virtual world? By the time you and I die, Tracy, we, we won't own anything anyway. Oh, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives a damn? We don't own any of the digital downloads that we have. Oh, it was, no, it, it, no. It, it, there was a joke on the internet years ago that um, diehards Bruce, um, Bruce yeah, he was trying to Bruce Willis. That was it. He was trying to sue Apple for the ownership of his iTunes. You know, you you buy all these digital music tracks, but you don't own them. You're renting them from. Oh well, the from, World Economic Forum already told us that. Not only will yeah, we yeah, own exactly. nothing, but we'll be happy. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't own any films anymore. I have a Netflix subscription. So you know what? When I die, that it just gets lost into the ether. And and thank God, like my poor, you know, ancestors won't have to inherit all these blasted VHSs. You know, it's like, well, what are we supposed to do with all this media apart from send it to the charity shop when someone dies? I think once again, the lawyers would probably have a field day with it and, you know, passing mm. it around and like doing sort of virtual conveyancing or whatever the you know the analogy will be and somewhere somewhere we'll be making a commission on something but yeah we won't have anything but that poster behind me says um it's cheap because it's the future <laughs> like, and that's exactly the point <laughs> Yeah, well, like, you know, that, that, that digital death stuff, it all comes back down to a fear of death, I think. It, it, it reminds me of Ray Kurzweil's obsession with uploading minds. I mean, his whole thing about being able to upload our minds into computers so we can live ad infinitum on some server rack somewhere is because he wants to bring back his dead father. He has a storage unit in the middle of California somewhere with all of his father's diaries and assumes mm -hmm. that you can an AI can ingest all of that information and kick out an authentic representation of his father. And, and I mean, you look at some of the influencers with large followings, I'm talking over 100,000 folks. I mean, who's going to care? Who's going to care? And I get it. Like, I can't remember who said it, but um, we die twice. Once when our body stops functioning and second when our names are mentioned for the last time. Mm. You know, we, we die in collective consciousness at that moment. You know, we're no longer uh, relevant to the current subjective reality that we, we live in. But I just don't think unless you did something utterly incredible that transformed humanity, largely a lot of the people are born, they live, they die. That is the passing of a life and a passing of an identity. Why do we need to preserve this stuff? 
Well, mostly it's billionaires that want to do it because you know, <laughs> yeah, very so. often hear of like normal everyday people wanting to immortalise themselves. Like it's only the people with the means to enjoy life forever, uh-huh. if it were even possible, and it's only the people who are power crazed to that extent and probably have some sort of god complex that 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 want to overcome the one thing that money can't <laughs> buy. You know, uh, but maybe it can. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you give the man who's got everything? Eternal life. <laughs> you know, so he can enjoy everything ad infinitum. Exactly. <laughs> it's just a, an obstacle to overcome, something to conquer, isn't it? I love looking at it sort of theoretically because I do find it fascinating. But then practically, I mean, there's so many aspects of it that you think, wow, if you could live forever or you could be, or you could be brought back or what does that mean? What if you've got no friends and family? Or what if your friends and family weren't expecting you to come back? And who's going to pay for you? You're not going to have to get a job. You know, you were dead two um, years ago, and now you've been uh, cryonically preserved, let's say, and you've come back. But you can't be you because you've got a death certificate. So who are you? How do you get Uh an identity? And then without an identity, how would you get a job? Who's supposed to put you up? (laughs) I know it sounds comical, but... Um, well, 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 Steve, Steve Fuller, oddly, uh, the, the, tr- the transhumanist professor Steve Fuller has a, has like a technical solution <laughs> for that problem where he's like, well, basically we'll share server space. So mm-hmm. if you were kind of like that person and might have had similar memories to that person, mm-hmm. instead of replicating your whole brain, we'll replicate little aspects of shared memories that you may have and it'll be just cheaper to put you on the same cloud service. It's great, but it doesn't sound very fulfilling. No, no, I mean, so. like, why bother? Well, why bother? You know, it, 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 these these games are so fun to play, but people are playing these games. And, you know, I've got a soft spot for Martin Rothblatt and Glabier Rothblatt and what they're doing at the Terrasen Movement Foundation. We had Bruce Duncan and Bina48 yes, yeah. on the podcast to talk about the idea of mind clones. And what mm-hmm. I love about the idea of mind clones is the reason they're doing it is to prove a point. And their point is perhaps this stuff actually isn't possible. Bruce uh, Duncan, if you prod him hard enough, mm-hmm. he kind of lets the lets the joke go, which is if we keep doing these experiments of trying to upload minds, we might actually find that the mind isn't a computer. It's yeah. actually something else. And that's the exciting thing about those sorts of projects to yeah, me. Yeah, it is exciting. I wonder how many of the guys there agree, though. I mean, because I think Gabriel has a different view possibly to that. And then Martine wrote Virtually Human, which is all about mm-hmm. the cyber consciousness and seems very, very clear and very confident that, you know, a cyber version of you would be you it wouldn't be a separate identity it wouldn't be an alternative identity it would just be a i think she calls it a dual platform consciousness so a bit like (laughs) when you're texting and talking you would just be like you know physical and cyber it's you i mean i have an issue with that because i think the mind uploading only works one way you're uploading Mm. to the gynoid or the android or whatever it is all the mind files but being a 48 then goes off and has a different experience Exactly. To I don't think, you know, then you've got different experiences, different memories. You can't then be the same person and have the same identity. You can share a lot of aspects and characteristics and possibly memories as well, but not to 100%, not to the same degree. And so I don't quite see how that works. It seems to me it's, it, it doesn't quite come together. It is an interesting experiment, though. And, it, and yeah. it's good because it's forcing people to think about it 
even if we don't find out through the experiment that it is or isn't possible or it's it's something else entirely that we didn't imagine, I think it definitely is forcing people to think about identity, even to the point where your brain is analogue, this computer is digital. <laughs> They're completely different mm. things. <laughs> so, you know, you can't just assume that you can upload your mind and there you there you are in a in a different substrate that just happens to be a computer. It, it it raises some some fascinating philosophical questions, and those are often better approached by science fiction authors. Greg Egan's "Learning to Be Me," which talks about the little chip inside your head that slowly but surely, ambiently learns everything about you to the point at which they can just scoop out your brain and have the chip replace your brain in its entirety. And of course, David Eagleman, who you mentioned in the book, his short fiction stories. Some, you know, and I think one of the stories is called "Great Expectations," and the idea that you can upload your mind into a virtual environment, but you have to kill the physical body and there's no guarantee you're ever going to know if it actually worked because <laughs> there can't be a bleed between lived reality yeah. and the virtual uh, environments. I mean, we, we've, we've talked so much about the, the idea of, of virtual and online identities, but your book goes so much further and talks about how we're datafying our lives across so many aspects of our everyday reality. And that's largely related to, to biometrics and, and the issue that we have right now of legal identity identities and healthcare-based identities, especially with the idea of COVID passports coming just around the corner. We, we create so much ambient data. We're, we're these data exhausts. And the question is, where does that data live? And you try to, you try to problematize that in your book. Well, because nobody knows where that lives. Mm. And increasingly, we are being told that we have to share data about ourselves because it's for it's back to this communitarian thing it's for the common good now since the pandemic obviously you throw people into a health crisis you can make them very fearful and you can take them to a place where they're begging for safety and in return for their either their freedom or their safety they'll give up a load of data or they'll give up different freedoms and that's what's happening right now and i think if you do look at the world economic forum's internet of bodies all this stuff about creating these biobanks where, yes, you'd want to share some data because you want to help humankind and we want to understand how the human race or parts of the human race is going to sort of um, react to certain diseases or viruses or how, how we can prevent that. But we don't really know what on earth is happening to that data. We don't really know that much about the vaccines. I'm not suggesting that this vaccine, <laughs> there's anything wrong with it or anything like that. But the messenger RNA is really, really fascinating, I think, because it is getting into that territory of biological data internally to us and externally being coming into our bodies then becoming internal. We don't really know what that's doing to us. I mean, you have to think about it. If it's true that in China, you know, they're, they are taking the DNA samples of every single uh, male from the age of 14 upwards, and they're going to have millions, billions of DNA data, and they're going to have that information. That is the classic kind of information that you need to create bioweapons, to create these viruses, to create vaccines, to create all these sorts of health um, solutions, if you like, which don't end up being health solutions because they really are mm. weaponized and they're based on biological data. And I think that's sort of obviously the area that we're going to move into one way or the other. To me, that's the most worrying because A, it's 
invisible and intangible, but also we're very trusting. We're very trusting about health. We're very trusting about medical issues and we don't really know any better, really. So anything could be happening that we don't we're not aware of. And I think particularly in the UK, whilst everybody's talking about vaccination certificates and health passporting and all that, we've got this UK, what's it called? Health Security Agency being Mm. set up with the prime intention of linking, integrating sort of, I think they call it health protection services and data to try and create behaviour change, to kind of socially engineer the population using digital technologies. And to me, I do pick up on it in the book and I talk about other examples that are around right now, like sobriety tagging. This coupling of health data, which is now, you know, biological slash digital data about our health and criminal data. So the way in which you are behaving, do we as a society want you to behave like that? Can we encourage you or coerce you to behave another way? And making the two interdependent is really worrying to me Mm. because I think we're far too trusting of it. And actually that's where we're going to have, that is where we're going to have a problem with identity really. I mean, regardless of all the virtual media and social media and all that, that's kind of frippery compared to what is going to be possible in this area. Yeah, that does worry me. I mean, with with the health data, it, it's so much more of a problem in the US where they have an insurance-based system of healthcare where your life choices or your pre-existing conditions can massively impact your quality of healthcare. Uh, we're lucky to a degree in the UK that it's a non-prejudiced system. You know, everybody's entitled to NHS healthcare, whether they have pre-existing conditions or not. But I guess that kind of goes back to the the core call within the book, the future of you. You have to take responsibility to ensure that you don't give out your identity and your data so frivolously. And I guess one of the ways of doing that is the idea of creating or using potentially blockchain technology to decentralize your identity and own your identity in some form of secure wallet that only you can access. And you can then provide access, if need be, to other individuals under your own choosing. So for example, if your health data lived there, you could share that quite openly with your GP or with your doctor, or you can make a decision to share it with drug trials, but you get to make that decision. You can go, hey, I've got a rare type of disease. I'm going to make my health data uh, anonymized and available to a drugs manufacturer. But if I'm going to do that, I want to kick back on when they develop the drug. You can basically realize there's value in this biometric data that we're producing ambiently. Yes, there's there's huge value in it. But I'm not sure you can ever really 100% control it. I mean, even on the decentralized digital apps, at some point you have to match it with the, let's say it's the NHS data that's kept on their big server it has to match to say ding ding yes public private key or whatever you had the vaccination so at some point that needs to match then off you go and you can show that anonymized verification wherever you want to show it it's not going to give anybody any other personal information and it's great you can control it it's your digital wallet it's your digital credential of whatever flavour, and and you're in control of it. But let's say that somewhere down the line, the government 
in this case, say, actually, you need to have a booster every six months. Mm. Oh, no, you need to have a booster vaccination every three months. It, you know, it's got to talk to that server much more regularly then. And sort of I do wonder who is capturing that information and where is it, especially if the app that might be being used has commercial corporate technology platforms involved as let's say the one that is being mooted at the moment by the nhs i'm not casting any aspersions on that i'm just using it as a as an example where does that data reside then and how much do they they have of it so we're never going to be a hundred percent in control of the data that is made available to us and the data that is matched and verifies us we're only then they're only then really in control of the way in which we go on to use it, you know, in every day. Mm. And that's a that's a good thing and that's an improvement and it's better than having a really centralised system where, you know, the government's got your your fingerprints and your veins in your hand and your, your, your iris and all of that sort of biometric data. And it's very much linked up to your behaviour as well as your sort of your health data and that they can incentivise you to behave in certain ways rather than others. Because I, like you, would think before last year, the health service is equal. Uh, People get treated fairly at the the point where they go into A&E or into hospital or whatever, or a GP. But actually what we found was that is not the case. Actually, it turned into the COVID health service. And actually there are a bunch of people who potentially, you know, have, have cancer and have other very difficult diseases and they weren't able to get access to the health service. So it does make me wonder, you know, at some point, any government or any institution can start to make that kind of discrimination about this set of people will be treated this way and that set of people won't. And potentially it could be on the basis of the kind of data that is available through, you know, that kind of health data. Mm, well, I mean, we could both get ourselves in trouble going down this this route, but you do look at things like when you have to access your crypto wallet, the types of authentication you have to go through, the scanning of the QR codes, the way in which it verifies and you sign with your phone. It feels so much more secure than just throwing in a password into a thing. Oh, yeah. What worries me is that the sorts of apps that are being built by, I guess, the UK government don't have that form of authentication or security or any of these things. And you go, hey, if this kind of worked like Coinbase, I'd be all for it because at least I know where it all sits. It sits on my side. But the idea that they're not building decentralized systems from the core means that the thing's going to be broken for years. And once you get a legacy system, you're stuck with it up until the point that someone hacks it. You know, And that's the thing that worries me. Why isn't it as secure as you know, making Bitcoin transactions on Coinbase or Binance? Because I'm guessing that nobody really knows how to do it in the institutions because most of the people who are doing those sorts of things are entrepreneurs working in commercial environments. I mean, they are, aren't they? Yeah, or Boris's buddies, but that's a whole other issue. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole other issue. You know, they've just given the contracts to their mates and none of those guys know how uh, how blockchain-based, allegedly, (laughs) I must say that, but none of those guys know how how that stuff works. But, I mean, look, we and you, the listener, I mean, we should take these 
these new ways in which we're producing data and information seriously. I mean, we're going to start creating so much more bio data, genomic data, neuro data. I mean, the, the things that can capture this data are becoming smaller and more pervasive inside of wearables. I mean, at what point do we need to start informing individuals that they are these rich resources of data. It's okay that you go monetize my digital detritus and my dumb little tweets. I don't care. But when it's my heartbeat that you're monetizing, and my, the internet of bodies, as you said, which, by the way, I love, because the internet of bodies was originally Ghislaine Boddington's uh, yes, term. And she, she, she's a digital media dancer and artist. It was this wonderfully egalitarian <laughs> idea of dancers producing all of this data that then could be used and fed back into artworks. Yeah. And it's been co-opted as a term yeah. and turned into this idea of, right, how do we monetize the internet of bodies? It's so uh, draconian <laughs> compared to how it was coined. No, totally. But when we do have the internet of bodies... It becomes a question of how do we then manage those identities? Exactly, because, you know, we're going to have terms of service mm. in the way that we have terms of service for our, you know, our social media, which feels so much more sort of infantile, really, compared to what we're talking about now, which is much more serious. We're going to have those terms of service and it is going to be much more serious because if you've got an implant or if you've downloaded a language or if you your brain is you've got a brain link and you're extending out onto the cloud or you've been given some extra like bandwidth or you're yeah. you've got more IQ because of that because you can access that you don't own that <laughs> and how, how on earth are you going to uh, have that sort of capability you're going to have to rent it from someone it's going to be a service from a platform and when you sign up to the terms of service or the t's and c's you can't anymore get away with just going i'll just agree at the end of it because and hope for the best because hoping for the best and being cancelled off a social media platform or whatever is not going to be the same as hoping for the best and then finding that you know you've had all your capabilities for speaking any languages taken away from you mm. obviously it sounds kind of science fiction but it's not that far off and i do think we need to start asking those sorts of questions i mean the way i sort of frame it in the book is that in the past we've had the psychology of self and we've had the biology of self and we can debate and disagree about um or agree where identity really resides does it reside in the consciousness and is to do with memories and continuation of experiences or is it in the biology that we've been talking about a lot you know you change your physicality you either change your physical appearance or it's it's biological makeup are you the same person so that's the the biology itself but those two dimensions have now been joined by a third dimension which is the technology of the self and i think this is where we start to think about you know technology especially media technology but not not just that technology is more than just a tool now it is becoming part of our identity and when that happens you have to take it a lot more seriously and you have to take the tech platforms and all of the aspects of data and all of the aspects of identity much more seriously because it really does have a big effect on you not just on your environment or some of the things you own or use but you <laughs> physically yeah. and mentally you your identity and your ability to exist in the world 
world. But again, it goes back to the issue that we don't really own any of that stuff. The platform can just switch us off one day. Correct. It was was Merlin Donald who said about the external memory system. And the quote he had was, the growth of the external memory system has now so far outpaced biological memory that it's no exaggeration to say we're permanently wedded to our great invention in a cognitive symbiosis unique in nature. And that's the real cyborgization of the Mm -hmm. human being. It's not about implants or wearables. It's the fact that for me to function, my brain partly exists on my phone. I don't know a single phone number, you know, (laughs) I don't need to, you know, because I have this thing, which is an extension of myself, this shiny glowing rectangle. And in it, I store all the phone numbers. And in it, I store a bunch of notes. There's, There's a bunch of stuff that is so important to who I am in the world that I don't necessarily have to remember. And that's a, that's a datafied self. It's not part of the natural born person, i.e. the biological entity that is me. It's it's part of the artificial person, the datafied self. I don't even know if it's artificial. I think it's an extension of your self, if you like. Um, I don't even know if it's artificial or it's it's alternative or something different. Well, I use I use the artificial and natural boundary in thinking about personhood or the notion of personhood, and I mean that from a legal perspective. A natural-born person is a biological human being born out into the world, but the artificial person is is all of the things that make them them and allow them to exist in the world, whether it's a passport, a driver's license, a bank account, a social security number, a, a birth or death certificate. And I'm uh, reminded of the work of Heath Bunting, who d- used to do these beautiful uh, rhizometic diagrams called the Status Project, where he took all of the data points that you would need to be considered a normal human person person and link them together. And it just made you realize in actual fact to exist in the world, you're a bunch of data sets and tick boxes. You, know? <laughs> you don't even need the biological entity. What really matters to the world is the fact that you've got a bank account, a passport and a bunch of other verifiable stuff that identifies you as you. And quite frankly, you only need a face to to be scanned by something to allow you into a country or not. You know, A face is just a, a thing that you have happen to have yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you only need the face for the performance yeah, yeah but there's the uh the riley versus california case which i was talking to somebody mm. about the other day which is is the data on the phone the property of you or is it you is it mm. part of you and i think what i'm saying i mean these cases go one way and then they go the other but i think increasingly at the moment it looks like potentially the courts will treat it as you know this is part of you it's not just a, the property of you so all the data you were just reeling off there. It's not just the property. It's not something you own or have. It is you. <laughs> you yep. created this data. It's like a footprint or a fingerprint or whatever. It's an, it's an echo of your identity. It's part of it. It wouldn't exist if you weren't around. Um, so it can't be the property of anybody else in a, in a way, and it couldn't have been created by anyone else. So I think that's, that's interesting. We need to obviously keep our eye on what's happening legally because obviously that's going to point the way to how it will pan out in the future. I think this is the way we need to start to think about it. Increasingly, I'm thinking that because of that and the point you've just made, that when we have these conversations about the self, it's the philosophical question is less about what is the authenticity of self, which obviously people talk about all the time 
Yeah. You never agree an answer because, well, we know why. Um, but it's the integrity <laughs> of the self and not in the sense of am I um, presenting the same self to you and somebody else? And not that kind of integrity, but the integrity of all these fragments that make up you, all these characteristics, these mo elements, I go into that in the book, because if you think about the Japanese, word, these are all these tiny little mo elements that can exist anywhere, um, but they're all elements of you. And so it's about managing and bringing about the integrity of all of those characteristics rather than thinking about the whole because I don't think that's what we are anymore. It's not how yeah. we exist in whatever world, hybrid, real, virtual, whatever. It, it is about the, the mixing and remixing, but certainly the, the integrity uh, or the, the joining of all of those little fragments that exist absolutely everywhere and anywhere. Well, at that point, it becomes less of a philosophical question and more of a legal question. It's like, who are you as a natural legal identity because we can have an amalgamation of data that can make up artificial persons otherwise known as corporations Mitt Romney famously said corporations are people my friends and it was never really sure whether he was referring to the corporations as his friends or the audience members he was uh, who was speaking to but the idea that you can have something that has personhood without having a biological body assigned to it, and in the case of artificial persons, that's corporations, that can also apply to other forms of non-human entities, and more specifically, robots. If we can legally assign data points to robots, then we could start arguing for robotic personhood. Yes, which is almost nothing to do with sort of self and selfhood, as David Gunkel will uh, quite rightly tell me. But it, nevertheless, it is a, a sense of personhood where rights can ascribe, be ascribed. You're obviously correct. And I mean, I've looked at a lot of these papers. They're really interesting. I mean, I think these are kind of non-biological intelligences. It's just a more interesting world if we do give them rights. Because, <laughs> like, mm. you know, if they are, particularly if they're very creative, I mean, if they are creating content and things like that, then possibly they should have rights. It's not that it's about the sorts of rights where we're looking at accountability and dangers and harms. It's more that there are rights that protect them, protect creative output or protect them, you know, in terms of copyright. I know David talks about this in terms of, you know, well, there's a moral patiency. They've got rights because it's really that in the same way that animals have rights, we're giving them rights so that we protect them, so that we uh, behave in a certain way so that they are protected. And I think that is probably probably the right way to think about it. Although I did look at some of this about, you know, in the end, if you gave these non-biological intelligences or robots, as you were saying, um, right, rights, certainly in the workplace, potentially they could end up suing you. Not only could you sue them, but they could sue you. And that would be a kind of interesting scenario, wouldn't it? Um, you know, there's cases of children disavowing or disowning their own parents. Their parents. So I, there we go. And I, I do wonder to, to what degree could you create a virtual person or a virtual influencer and you've created it 
And it starts making a lot of money through brand deals and through micropayments. And it starts developing the desire to want to buy certain virtual objects. And you're sitting there going, no, 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 I want to convert the cryptocurrency that you're making into fiat currency so I can spend it as the creator out in the real world. And this virtual person is basically arguing back, no, 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 you may have created me, but I... uh, I own everything that I've made. I mean, you know, Instagram influencers don't need to pay their parents a percentage of every brand deal they get, even though their parents were the reason they may look the way they do. And that might be the thing that's getting them all the Instagram brand deals. You know, that becomes a fascinating, problematic hole in the law. There's going to be lacunas in the law specifically related to AI clones and and, and Mm -hmm. digital twins. Yeah, I mean, we're just not going to know till the first cases come because you yeah. can't even imagine <laughs> how to discuss it without a practical, actual case in real life. Yeah. You can only really apply the law to it then. I mean, we're close to it. And I had Roman Krasnarik on the on the podcast yes. and he was talking about assigning rights to rivers and rights to mountains and specifically mm-hmm. doing that so that um, we wouldn't pollute. So it's 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 basically a way to protect the earth by giving Mother Earth, Gaia, giving her, in quotes, legal personhood. And by doing that, it would be seen as an attack in a way in which it wouldn't be if this river or this mountain or this forest wasn't considered a person. So there's a potential that the law that's written there could bleed back into robot rights. And it's it's more likely that animal personhood and the personhood of nature itself is the thing that's going to really define how virtual persons are going to be able to claim their independence from human beings. Yeah. Well, dolphins are are persons. They're classed as persons. But it's just you have to think about how limited those legal rights that are delivered through a legal personhood really, really are. And I do Mm. think they are pretty limited. Although there is a very interesting academic paper. I think it's it it basically says, look, we're not talking about citizenship here. <laughs> it's mm. not those sorts of rights. Although that's kind of interesting to explore. It's the sort of rights of like the right to exist. So you can't unplug me. You can't turn me off. It's the right to new components. You know, should it need new components, you can't deny those because you'd kind of be denying it the its own existence. You know, these are these are some very interesting but quite transactional, quite limited rights of persons. Mm. But but even so, it does open up the whole idea of it's not just the human beings with the rights, it is all the other things, whatever they might be, that we will coexist with in the world and actually reframing the way in which we we think about what exists in the world and what has rights and what has responsibilities and how we ascribe them and where we ascribe them to. That's what was so wildly interesting to me about the United Arab Emirates giving Sophia the robot citizenship. Mm-hmm. And it's important to define these different things. You know, citizenship, as you said, is is different from personhood and different from certain legal identities. And everybody was outraged because that meant that a robot had more rights than a woman in Saudi Arabia. And it wasn't actually about that. What was interesting to me was the fact that by giving a non-human entity citizenship, you've also given a non-human entity 
the right to vote. So if you really wanted to hack an election, it sounds like it'd be a lot cheaper instead of trying to move a populace into thinking a certain way by just giving a load of non-human entities citizenship and then having them vote a certain way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what was so unbelievably scary to me. Everybody was focusing on, oh, you know, what does this mean for women? But I was like, yeah, I understand that, but understand what Sophia's actually been given. She's been given a right to vote. That's terrifying. Now you can assign my toaster the right to vote. Even better than that, if she's given citizenship, she's given the vote. She's given the right to stand for election. I think yeah. that's that's more interesting even than being given the right to vote. Um, because I do think that at some point in time, we're going to have AI politicians um, I've researched this years ago with um, consumers who, you know, say what you expect them to say, which is great because they won't be corrupted and great because they'll make better, obje- more objective judgments and all of that. Uh, of course, it doesn't really, it isn't really like that in reality. But I can see a point at which, you know, the more technocratic politicians get and the more scientism enters and replaces perhaps a d- democracy, then why would you bother with an actual person? Because so many of them are performers anyway, as we've just been discussing about people. Mm. The politicians have become performers too, and they're performing for their audiences on their media. But let's say, you know, if that becomes the only or the primary job, and you don't really need that, you need somebody to carry out in a competent way, the the judgments, the policies, and the and the technocracy to make the administrative system work. And so, mm. why wouldn't you just put AI in there? I, I could certainly see intelligence augmentation featuring in politics. Uh, you know, these these things basically suggesting certain policy points based on the sentiment analysis of their constituents, but considering how fragmented and fractured, you know, right left wing politics is, I mean, these things are going to make some god awful decisions (laughs) based on uh, the information out there about their ideal voter. It might end up in some very, uh, some very tricky spaces we don't want to necessarily be in. When I spoke to Zoltan Istvan, he talked about how you could like connect up in the hive mind and actually, you know, sort of the president of the United States, you could be in close personal contact through the mind of, you know, the politician and the voter. You know, you could imagine that because they're going to have to get they're going to have to get much more personalized with every single person and there's no reason why you couldn't bring about that experience so that's how you vote really <laughs> it's maybe you just exchange a thought maybe you never have to go to a physical voting booth at all this becomes the great fear it's like when all of this stuff becomes virtualized will there be humans around to even witness it. I mean, if it's virtual influencers talking to virtual audience members, you know, why? Maybe in a funny sort of way, maybe this is just how we're going to eventually get off the internet. You know, we're going to realize that the internet is the place for the AIs to talk to each other. We can exist there as a virtual person. We'll have a third life that we can check in with eventually and go, hey, how's my life on Twitter going? And we can go and just live in the real world. It'll be a case of let the AI have the internet because it's a horrible place for a human being to be. I'm going to go live in the real world. <laughs> I think, yeah, 
yeah, I think once, you know, Starlink is connected to Neuralink, yeah, well, then one might want to go somewhere else. Quite possibly, Tracy. I mean, there's so much in your your book. It's a wonderful read, and it, it really raises so many philosophical and and legal and and ethical questions about who we should be, how we should be, and more importantly, how enraged you, as an individual and as an audience member listening to this, should be about protecting your own identity. And I want to thank you for writing the book, Tracy, and thank you for being on the Futures Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Tracy for sharing her thoughts on how to take control of our identity in an increasingly digital world. You can find out more by purchasing her new book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? Available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.